Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So what we want to keep it quiet for a moment, um, but whenever we say the name of Haman, boo, boo and hiss, and we can use the noisemakers, okay? And the reason for that is because in Exodus chapter 17, when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, the first nation to attack the Jewish people were the Amalekites. And as the Amalekites attacked Israel... Joshua took the troops, marshaled them to fight against the Amalekites. As long as Moses' hands were raised, the Israelites were successful. But as he got tired, his hands came down, and as a result, they would start losing the battle. So Aaron and Hur sat next to Moses, who sat on a rock. And, you know, I'm going to have... So, so here's the thing. I'm going to have to dispatch some of our police. Where's Ron? Is he, oh, Ron's not here today. Otherwise, he'd be coming. But, uh, but just listen for a moment. When the Amalekites were attacking the Israelites, whenever Moses' hands fell, then the Amalekites were victorious. So Aaron and Hur came alongside of Moses. Moses sat down on a rock, and they held his hands up. As long as his hands were up, the Israelites were victorious and the Amalekites were defeated. But God said in Exodus chapter 17 that he would wage war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until they are no more. In the book of Judges, we read and I shared a little bit about Eglon and Echud, the judge. Echud, the lefty who had killed Eglon. Well, Eglon had marshaled the Ammonites and the Amalekites alongside of him to destroy Israel. They took control of Jericho, which was the first city that Joshua had taken when they came into the Promised Land. But the Amalekites were among them, but they weren't wiped out at that point. Later in the book of Samuel, we're told that Saul was given the responsibility to kill Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. Saul refused to kill them. He, in fact, spared them. Samuel was irate. And Samuel himself took a sword and killed the king of the Amalekites. But the Amalekites were not destroyed at that point either. But when we get to the book of Esther, we learn that Haman, now you can use it, was 
was an Amalekite. He was an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. And so the reason why we boo and hiss is because God said that he would wipe out the Amalekites. He'd have war with them from generation to generation until they are no more. And since the Amalekites have been destroyed, whenever Haman is mentioned... Whenever Haman is mentioned, so I, was test, I was testing you to see if you were paying attention. Whenever that one was mentioned, we boo and hiss because we want to wipe out his name since the Amalekites have been destroyed. Now, when Esther is mentioned, you can... Uh, and whenever Mordecai is mentioned, you can... Yeah. Now, before we read this, I want to share with you one of, of Linda's poems. She wrote a poem for Purim. And like all of the things she writes, it's amazing. So it's called The Purim Story. Haman <laughs> snake-like in this drama, plays that man of sin. That evil one, serpent-like, who slithers as he schemes. To be like God, to take control, his only aspiration. I will ascend the holy hill while hiding desperation. In order to ascend, he must first thwart the plan of God. The plan for man God had unveiled was certainly at odds. Mistaking love for weakness... He launched a confrontation, put his hand on God's beloved without much contemplation. Now, no one knew Queen Esther was one of God's elect, positioned by the hand of God to a place of great respect. So Haman honored as the guest of Esther with the king had been mortified when Mordecai failed to bow to him. Haman's wounded pride was more than he could stand, so his wife and friends encouraged him to strike a blow for man, build a gallows that same day to hang that Mordecai. Convince the king tomorrow that he should surely die. But Mordecai, an upright Jew, had saved the king from poison, and yet his deed was overlooked long after it was recorded. So the king had Haman lead a horse for Mordecai the Jew. While shouting and proclaiming, our king does honor you. Complaining, Haman told his wife a little bit too much until his wife reminded him that any cause as such would fail as predetermined. God's plan had made that clear. Her growing trepidation was fast becoming fear. A fear forgotten as they spoke, for the king's men came to bring Haman to the banquet by honor of the queen. 
And while he would be the first to know her secret supplication, she favored him above the rest, a certain indication. Encouraged in his pride, his head was held quite high until the queen revealed her heart, don't let my people die and spare my life at my request if you give me anything. Who would dare to harm you, my darling, said the king. My king, she said, if only my people had been sold, I wouldn't even bother you, and this tale would not be told. But this Haman has conspired to exterminate the Jews. My fate is with my people, who have done no wrong to you. Enraged, the king withdrew as Haman tasted fear and threw himself on Esther's couch, hoping she would hear his piteous cry for mercy. But his his plea came way too late. When the king saw Haman near the queen, he had sealed his fate. A gallows stands in Haman's Court. Then hang him, said the king, and hang his sons. But before you do, give me back my ring. He gave the ring to Mordecai, who saved his fellow Jews. And Mordecai, a humble man, became the who of who's. Hey, is that pretty good? Yeah. So the question is, do we really need to read the story? (laughs) I don't know. But the book of Esther opens up with King Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. That's from India to Egypt. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And he decided to throw a party for all his nobles and his officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces. There were 127 provinces that the king had controlled. And this party was not merely a party. It was a banquet. It wasn't really merely a banquet. It was a six-month celebration. They celebrated for 180 days. And he displayed his wealth of his kingdom, the splendor, the glory, and the majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave another banquet, lasting seven more days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace in Susa. And while he was gathered with all of the nobles, he wanted to continue to show them everything that he had. He showed them everything with the one exception, his queen, Vashti. So he called for Queen Vashti and called for her to come to display her beauty before all of the nobles that were gathered together. But Vashti was the creator of NOW, the National Organization of Women, and refused to come before the king and his nobles. Of course, now the king was frustrated. What do I do? But more importantly, his nobles were fearful because if the queen would not obey the king, what will happen to all the women throughout the kingdom? They won't obey their husbands. 
And that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes, it would be terrible. And so the nobles challenged the king. They said, since Vashti's not going to obey you like she ought to, then let the king divorce his wife and let her get another, let him get another queen, another wife for him to marry. So in chapter 2, the nobles come up with a great idea. Let's have the very first beauty pageant of all presenting herself. But before she would pre- present herself before the king, Esther and all those that were brought before him had to complete, this is amazing, 12 months of beauty treatments. That would, that would help Barry, wouldn't it? He could use some beauty treatments. 12 months of beauty, that would help all of us, right? But that's not all. Not only did she have 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, but it was divided up six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfume and cosmetics. And that's how she would go to present herself before the king. And the king chose Esther uh, above all the women in the kingdom, to be his queen and to be his wife. Later, we read in the same chapter that Mordecai was sitting at the gate of the city where all the elders of Israel, or I should say of Persia, would gather. And among those elders, among those nobles, were two individuals, Bigthana, I think it is, and Teresh. And these two individuals were plotting to assassinate the king. And Mordecai happened to overhear their plans. And so through the proper channels, Mordecai had the message sent to the king so that the king might defend himself or at least avoid his untimely death. And so the king had sent out his men. They found that the plot indeed was occurring. And those individuals were executed. And the record of what transpired was written into the annals and the chronicles of the king. And so in chapter 3, we read that after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. son of Amadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate, they asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman. They told him about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. 
Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the best interest of the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger. He gave it to Haman, the son of Amadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. And do with the people as you please. So then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps and governors and various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. And on that day, they could destroy the Jewish people, harm them, and take whatever they possessed. And then after the edict was issued, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. In chapter 4, we find out that Mordecai, when he learned of all of this, he put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went out only as far as the king's gate because no one was permitted to enter the king's gate in sackcloth or in ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatash, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And so Mordecai then told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction and annihilation of the Jewish people. So Mordecai explained this to Esther. And he told him to urge her to go to the king's presence, to beg for mercy, plead with him for her people. But Mordecai... 
excuse me, but Esther. <laughs> I meant Mordecai. <laughs> no, I, I just like the kind of contrast there. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces knew that for any man or woman who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter and therefore spare his life. But 30 days has passed since the king has called for Esther. But when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this word to Esther. And Mordecai said, (laughs) do not think. It's so interesting. Having such control. You know, such control. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther... Standing in the court, he was pleased with her. He held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman... Come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once. And the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Well, Haman went out that day happy and high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. When he got home, he called together his friends and Zeresh's wife. And Haman 
He boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she was invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the gallows built. In chapter 6, that night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles of the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said the next day, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have him bring a royal robe that the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden upon, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor. Lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai. The Jew who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home and his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman, Away 
to the banquet Esther had prepared. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, by the way, that's the third time the drinking of wine was mentioned. The king again again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said... The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine. He must have been really angry. He got up, left his wine, went out into the palace garden. But Haman realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Because it was understood by the Persians that any 
edict signed with the king's ring was an indication of the gods determining what would be. The king could not therefore reverse the edict that was signed by his own determination. But King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew because Haman attacked the Jews. I have given the estate to Esther. And they hanged him on it. But now write another decree in the king's name and behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. Seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and seal of his ring could be revoked. And thus the king signed a new document allowing the Jewish people to defend themselves. And thus they did. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. In chapter 9, we read, Mordecai recorded these events. He sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate every year the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue to the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent, among the Jews, held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. What a marvelous portion of Scripture, no? And what great great messages are found in this wonderful book. Let me just share with you a couple of themes that rise to the occasion and just shower us as we read this book. Number one, of course, is God's promise to Abraham. I'll bless them that bless thee. I'll curse them that curse thee. The promise that God would always defend his people from all of their enemies. And that promise we see lived out in history. No matter what enemy has risen up against our people, God has time and time again delivered them. Whether it was the Egyptians, and we celebrate the deliverance of the Jewish people from the Egyptians in the celebration of Passover. 
whether it was the Amalekites, we see how God had saved his people from their intention to harm and to destroy the Jewish people. Whether it it was the Romans, whether it was the Greeks, whether it was the Persians, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it was the Assyrians, whatever nation has come against God's people in the ancient world, God has delivered them. But it's not only limited to what had happened in the ancient world, even in the modern world. When we think about what had happened when the church had issued the Inquisition in 1492 and the Jewish people were spared. When we think of the crusades that rose up against the Jews throughout Europe and pillaged and harmed and destroyed those communities, God spared them from their enemies. When we think of the rise of Nazism and what transpired in Europe when six million Jewish people were slaughtered, nevertheless, God spared his people, and our people continue to grow in numbers. When we think about what the Russians had done in persecuting the Jewish people within their borders, and we see how God opened the doors during perestroika, and many Jewish people left the land of Russia and came into the land of Israel. When we see how the Arab nations conspired to align themselves together, and wage war against the Jewish people and the Jewish state in 1948, 1956, 1972, 1973, and the 1980s when those uh, terrorist groups in Lebanon attacked the Jewish people. What we see going on now in terms of those uh, terrorist groups in Lebanon, those groups of Hamas in Gaza, those groups that are supported by the Iranians, whatever nation has raised their hands against the Jewish people have always been brought to naught because God has promised that I will always defend my people for I will bless them that bless thee, but I will curse those who curse thee. And the story of Esther continues to be lived out in the modern era, even as it has been lived out in the ancient world. There's another story here that I think is important for us to think about as I consider God's deliverance of his people. In a sense, this is a resurrection event. This is what the prophet spoke of when he would breathe upon the Jewish people, give them new life, and they would be raised to new life, not only physically, but spiritually. A resurrection out from the dead. In effect, that's what the story of Esther is about. For all points and purposes, the Jewish people were consigned to destruction and annihilation and death. But God had raised them from death to life, even as he spared his people. And I find it very wonderful to think that we're celebrating Purim the day before the Christian church is celebrating the resurrection of our Messiah. Because we too, like the Israelites, like the Jewish people in the book of Esther, and like the Jewish people throughout history, have experienced what is tantamount to a death. Because we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are alienated and separated from life because we're separated from the living God in whom alone is life. 
That is why Yeshua said, if you destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up. And I remember when various cult groups would come to my door and they would challenge me to consider their ideas. And they would speak of Messiah, Yeshua, less than who he really is. I would turn to that passage in John, what is it, chapter 2 or so? And I would ask, how is it possible for a dead man to raise himself to life? Because Yeshua said, if you destroy this temple of which he spoke about his body, I will raise it up. How does a dead man raise himself to life? And the only way he can do that is if he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who embodies all of life. And by faith in him, we can have not only life more abundantly, but life that is eternal in nature, in all of what that means. Not only eternal in terms of longevity, but eternal in terms of the quality of life we can live. Not only in this world, but indeed in the world to come. The story of Esther is a story of resurrection. And the story of Messiah is a story of resurrection. And this is the capstone of our faith. Paul himself says, if Yeshua is not raised, our faith is worthless. He said, we are of all people most miserable because we would then be living a lie. But we are not living a lie because the God of life has raised himself to life and he's raised each and every one of us who've placed our faith in him to life as well. And if you've never placed your faith in him, you need to do that. I know we oftentimes speak about inviting people to receive the Lord, but scripture speaks of it as a command. Receive the Lord that you might have life. And that's why when Yeshua is asked, what must we do to do the works of God? What must we do to obey the commandments of God? And Yeshua said, believe on the one whom he has sent. If you want to obey God's commandments, believe on him. It isn't a matter of keeping the Sabbath or not eating certain products or wearing certain garments. It's a matter of believing in the one whom he has sent. And in the past, he has sent the Mordecais, the Moseses, the Joshuas to deliver us from our temporary setback. But Messiah came to deliver us from all of our sin, not just temporarily, but for all of eternity, not just spiritually, but even to the point of delivering us from our own frustrations, our own trials, our own circumstances, our own challenges, whatever they might be. He has come to give life, and therefore we are to trust in him. He's the one that will bring us through the wilderness. And it may be a difficult trek through, but he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be with us, no matter what our challenge, no matter what our desert, no matter what our low place. Even as David said, that he is with me even in the shadow, in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And in fact, Messiah told us 
that on the day that we die, he would come and bring us to that place that he has prepared for us. For he said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will bring you to that place that God has prepared. Do not miss out on what Messiah is preparing for you. If in six days, he in the whole sphere of the triune God can create the heavens and the earth and all that's in the universe, imagine what he's able to do with 2,000 years. Imagine what he is preparing now. And imagine what he is preparing is for you and for me. He's not just preparing this, he's preparing it for you. What a wonderful God we serve. Let's pray. And let's, let's stand together and let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.